UX Podcast is funded by James and myself, together with any contributions we can get from you, our listeners. You can contribute any amount you'd like, whenever you like, by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast, episode 253. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom and James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 197 countries and territories in the world, from Hungary to Mali. Derek Feverstone is Chief Experience Officer at Level Access, who acquired Simply Accessible, which is the company Derek founded back in 1999, and at Level Access... He's helping set the vision and direction in their quest to make the web more accessible and inclusive, one screen at a time. And Derek joins us today as we look both backwards and forwards at how accessibility has changed and needs to change. And hang with us right to the end for our post-Derek interview reflections and thoughts. So here's the thing. Um, I think the three of us, we've been thinking and doing accessibility for a long time. I mean, almost 20 years, in your case, probably more. And I've actually left the accessibility space for a while and done other stuff within design and then come back and left and come back uh, a few times. And then I think uh, over the past three or four years, people have started asking me more and more about, about accessibility. So it feels like uh, I'm seeing this sort of a revival in, in the interest in accessibility, whereas I was frustrated for, for many years. But I know that you've been extremely focused on this for, for probably longer than I have. And, and so have you seen this trend where people get more interested and, and less interested over the years as well? Yeah, I think it, it ebbs and flows. People get really excited about it. It gets some groundswell. People start taking a lot of action. And then... I don't know if it's exactly this, but something else new and shiny comes along and it takes people's attention away and they focus on that. Or I find that, you know, I see a lot of people, they get maybe similar to you, they get really involved in accessibility. And then for whatever reason, after three, four, five years, they, you know, they maybe move to another position or they get tired of it or they want to explore other things and they don't maybe focus on accessibility anymore. Um, so, I don't know. I think there's this natural ebb and flow for people that aren't maybe full-time committed to it, or that sounds bad that I'm saying they're not committed to it, but you know, if it's, if it's not their job and they're not dedicated to it as, as the thing that they do, maybe it, it's easier for that to kind of, you know, fade away into the background and to pursue other interests. So um, yeah, I'm not sure, but I, I definitely, have felt a bit of a resurgence over the last few years and and maybe there is a, a natural ebb and flow to it. That's so one of the things that when we say about, you know, well, I think maybe one aspect of this is that we maybe failed over all these years to make accessibility part of the kind of baseline work. The average, you know, you have to focus on it. You have to kind of dedicate yourself to it rather than it be just something we do. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people that, that ask me, uh, um, they ask me a question and they say, 
should accessibility be its own thing or should be should it be a part of everybody's job and something that everybody does? And they ask it like it's an or question, like it has to be one or the other, but it really should be both, right? Like accessibility should be part of everything because it's part of everybody's job. There's there's connections to accessibility from literally every position that's that's out there, at least in the in the digital world, there's always a connection to accessibility, but we still need to have people that are, are dedicated to it where it's, it's their specific thing that they specialize in, that they take on. Uh, it used to be that accessibility specialists were people that did all the testing, right. And they did all the consulting and helping. Now I think we're, we're moving to a model where, we're distributing the load of of testing so that that doesn't rest on the shoulders of, you know, a small team of four or a, a team of one or one person that's, you know, it's not even their dedicated full-time job, but they showed interest in accessibility and therefore they're the one that does all the accessibility testing. I think we're at a point where, you know, the, the load is being distributed and then accessibility specialists are moving more into coaching and mentoring roles rather than I'm going to do all the testing. So I think things have changed over changed over time and people are starting to to recognize that it should be part of everything that we do, but it does need space and time and thought on its own where it isn't part of everything else. Um, and that that I think makes it a little bit more uh, maybe a little bit more mature as a as a as a practice. But what led me to what what kicked off this conversation um, was when I, I tweeted um, a few weeks ago now, um, asking people, asking designers, how they uh, how they make sure their designs are accessible and and how they make sure they end up being accessible when they're actually um, implemented. And that I mean, a few, quite a few people maybe misunderstood what I was asking there because I was one. It was more came from the situation where that like we're saying there that there's different aspects to um accessibility i mean not all of it is about colors and the and the visual part that you're seeing i mean some of it is under the hood it, it involves uh, maybe patching stuff up with a bit of um aria or um or following certain um standards of how you do stuff and testing to make sure it actually works and um i get Oh, something I notice of and also get the feeling of as well as noticing it actually happening is that some people think that their job's done when they kind of save a file out from Sketch or maybe once they've checked the contrast is okay, then leave, they hand it over. And that feels like we're, you know, just not embedding it in the way that... It, totally. Could. And I think it's, uh, for years, accessibility was seen as the domain of the engineer, of the developer, right? And that if you were to ask somebody how they fixed a particular accessibility issue, they would talk about the code that they needed to write to do it. But the reality is, as we as we mature as an industry and as we start to learn more and as we understand better how people with different types of disabilities, other than people that are blind and use screen readers, how other people with other disabilities use things or or have very specific access needs, as we understand that better, we are starting to understand better the role of design uh, in, in accessibility. So it's not just simply a list of bugs in the code that we need to go fix, right? It's it's not as simple as that. When when we first started talking about accessibility 
and the design side of things, it was about color contrast and the use of color alone. Now we're starting to talk about, you know, starting to talk about, have been for probably, you know, six or seven years, but it's, it's something that doesn't make its way into the mainstream because not enough people know about it. So topics like proximity, um, you know, proximity is, it's a, it's a design principle in general, right? Two things that are related to one another should be close together, at least visually in the interface. Um, and yet we see all kinds of things where we have error messages, for example, we'll have an error in a form and we will only get an error message up at the top of the form. And we have nothing that is more local to the form field itself where the error actually happened. That's a, that's an issue of proximity. And, and we think things like, oh, okay, well, I can code this in such a way that that error that's up at the top of the page can be related to the form field that's down in the middle of the page, which is cool. That works well for a screen reader user. It can, or it can work well for a screen reader user, but for someone with low vision, they are only seeing a small portion of the screen. So they are, are looking at that form field and they have filled it in. They've hit the submit button because, and, and they're not even seeing that error that is happening up at the top of the screen. Oh, is this because they're using like um, Zoom tech? So they've, 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 fucked, yeah. they've zoomed into a really small part of the screen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. And so, you know, we've done, we did a, a usability study uh, late last year. And I think there was about, I think there was eight people in the study and they all had low vision. And so they all used different tools like Zoom text, or they might've used the native, you know, native magnif magnifier tools on a Mac or, or on Windows. And of the, of the eight people that participated, I think three of them had their screen magnified or were using their magnifier tool to magnify their screen to 1200% magnification. Now, you know, if you put that in, do some, some math on this, 200% magnification means that you're seeing one quarter of the screen at a time. 300% magnification means you're seeing one ninth of the screen at a time. If you keep extending that out, 1200% means somebody is seeing one 144th of the screen at any given time. So the, the, you know, the, the organization we were working with, they were actually testing uh, the use of their use of iconography um, and for error messaging and, and other things like that. They were checking their placement of notifications and they were checking, uh, they wanted to learn more, more about the messaging system and notification system that they had built in to their entire platform. And all those things happened up in the top right corner of the screen, uh, and they were very difficult to to see for someone with low vision. So you know that that's the the kind of thing that is starting to happen is we're we're getting a better understanding of what we need to do from a design perspective. That is not just color contrast. It's not just simply here's my sketch file, here's my Figma file, and I've checked color contrast. Therefore, as a designer, I'm done. Proximity and placement is 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 one of the most significant things uh, that that we see from a design perspective that needs tending to uh, simply because you know when when someone is has low vision they're seeing potentially a very small portion of the screen and so we've got to come up with better better mechanisms so you'll see for example an add to cart button that will add to a cart up in the top right you'll get a little little notification up in the top right of the screen or somewhere else well, we're starting to see people 
give visual feedback on the add to cart button that shows that it was being added to the cart so that there's like a little spinner that goes on the left of the button. And that once it's actually successfully added to the cart, that little spinner will turn into a check mark so that there's visual feedback right where the person is looking, even if they have low vision. So we're starting to to see, uh, you know, new needs, things that and actually I say that they're not new needs. There were needs that were always there. They were just needs that we didn't really understand or know enough about in in order to to start uh, delivering on those needs. So we're seeing a lot of that where things like proximity are coming into it. Uh, and if I another one, this is a big one. Uh, we work with teams on on this all the time. When we talk about keyboard interactivity, right? Making a, a particular widget, a carousel, a date picker, a whatever, making that accessible and usable via the keyboard is the, traditionally that's like, that's the engineer's job. That's the developer's job. I, I'm a big believer that that's actually a thing that the, the interaction, keyboard interactions are so critical. They need to be designed. There can be no guesswork in it. We actually have, you know, a good established set of patterns that that talk about, hey, here's how the keyboard should work for a date picker, for a whatever. Those are all methodically designed. Uh, and and when we get to a point where we're using something that is maybe a little bit of a a, a new pattern or something something that's a little bit different, we actually need the designer to spend the time you know, do the research to figure out what needs to be happen and and spend time specifying in some reasonable way what the keyboard interaction should be like. Uh, because if we don't do that as designers, we hand that over to a developer. And this is, you know, no fault of the developer. They code it and they just go with what they what they think it should be. And that's not always the way that it should be. So there's a there's a lot more to the design side than what we were thinking about you know, 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, where it was, you know, largely color contrast, color alone, those kinds of visual things. Now we're thinking about this in much more, uh, much more thorough, thorough ways that take into account many more disabilities. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in my experience, we were constrained a bit about how we categorize disabilities. We always talk about um, there's seeing, hearing, motor, and cognitive. And we sort of think of those as single points of entry that we have to solve. Whereas when you actually learn and meet and talk to people with disabilities, you understand that many people who have a disability usually have multiple disabilities. And you have these types of disabilities that are so seldom part of the conversation. Uh, like my mind was blown when I, when I learned about dyscalculia. And there was a study in Sweden around people having trouble with passwords. And you thought, well, people with, with uh, visual impairments, of course, they have trouble with passwords. But it wasn't mostly them. Uh, it, was like, it was like 4% of the people with visual impairments, whereas 50% of people with dyscalculia had problem, which means that you have trouble understand, understanding numbers. But not only trouble understanding numbers, what that really implies is that you actually have trouble understanding distance because that is expressed in numbers and you have trouble understanding prices because that is expressed in numbers. So you have to try and find an anchor for them to understand something that they can relate to, like um, the price of a liter of milk. 
so how many liters of milk does this thing cost? And you have to visualize that in totally different ways to help these people understand what we can quantify with a single digit for, for, for many other people. Uh, so just, just that aspect of disability was just, wow, I'm learning so much the more I dive into this subject. What? You know, you're, you're, this is perfect. You, you led to exactly a point that I wanted to make. And this is, this is probably where, you know, this is the, the thing that I will be harping on and, and talking about for the next, you know, for the next 15, 20, 30 years, however long I'm doing this, I'm, I'm guessing that this is going to be the thing that, that I'm going to continue to talk about. We don't do enough work. Uh, with with actual people with disabilities, we don't understand enough. We we think, oh, we understand how this part works. We understand how a screen reader works. We understand how a magnifier works. Therefore, we don't have anything else to learn from that particular group of of people with that particular disability. And that is the most dangerous thinking that we can possibly have. Uh, you know, accessibility, and I, I've said this in many talks before at conferences, accessibility is an outcome that we are trying to achieve. Inclusive design is actually a really sustainable and responsible and ethical process that we can use to get there. Uh, we, people talk about, oh, accessibility is one of our core values. Like, inclusion should be your core value. And accessibility ends up being a really good byproduct of including people with disabilities. So I'm, you know, I've, I've turned a lot of my conversations over the last, uh, over the last five years towards inclusive design. Uh, a lot of people use the, the terms inclusive design and accessibility interchangeably, but they're, they're not the same thing, right? The, the in inclusive design is a process. Accessibility is an outcome and we should be using inclusive design to achieve accessibility rather than achieving accessibility by guessing or by, you know, exclusively relying on past experiences. Um, so as soon as we start thinking, oh, I know enough about this particular type of disability, that's like you need to double down and do more because there's, there's so much that we miss if we just think about, um, you know, think about things and that we've already got it, right? We always have to be doing that inclusion work and doing that research to find out more. Is this another one of those examples where the language we choose to adopt is crucial in how the thing and the topic is then uh, solved or played out or, or implemented? Absolutely. The, the, the words that we use matter. The way that we describe a problem, the way that we we talk with our colleagues about a problem. I I, I was talking about this the other day with uh, with another group of uh, with another group of people. Um, the 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 mindset in a lot of places about accessibility is that it's like this fixed thing, right? We had WCAG 1.0 for for you know eleven years, twelve years. I can't even remember how long, and then we had another. Uh, we had WCAG 2.0 and then we had 2.1. There's like, that's like a 10 year on average, like a 10 year release cycle in between those. And that I think made a lot of people think that accessibility was this static thing that we already knew everything we needed to know about accessibility. Uh, and, and a lot of people just didn't realize that 
they didn't realize that there's a lot more to accessibility than than the things that we have codified and put into the you know the international standard. I think a lot of people don't even don't know that there are things that we know but we can't we can't make it objectively testable or we can't achieve consensus on it therefore it doesn't make it into our standards and and guidelines but that doesn't mean it's it's not you know that that things are if it's not on that list it's it's accessible like we we saw this before WCAG 2.1 we used to see low contrast radio buttons in forums all the time people would do a custom radio button and then as soon as WCAG 2.1 came around, we had uh, we have some guidelines around non-text contrast. So radio buttons need to have just as much contrast as uh, as text would, or it needs to meet some color contrast guidelines. Pre-2018, people would push back and say, well, we don't need to do that because it's, you know, this is a radio button, it's not text. It's not like that low contrast radio button was accessible before and isn't now. It was never accessible. We just didn't have a good set of guidelines around it to point to to say it's not accessible and here's why. So things, you know, the, the a lot of people I think misunderstand or haven't maybe even thought of the nature of accessibility and the the fact that we're always learning new things and we're always trying to figure out how can we make this better? for as many people as possible and how do we put that into guidance for designers for developers for testers and i think that's that's you know a big part of the conversation that's missing yeah i think you you're right and of course when you do have those defined standards ones which even have acceptance criteria um then you really are pushing yourself to a world where it's a tick box and you know, when we've we're doing procurement exercises and you've got to fulfill that standard then it really does push you to to achieving just that standard and those points and shuts the door on that broader conversation it, it totally does and that's you know i i push for this with as many clients as i can they they want to understand and they want to know their current state and so they do you know, they will go through and they will get audits and assessments done and they will make some changes and they want to know how they're doing. And, you know, there's there's definitely that aspect of it. You know, how did you do against the standard? But the real, the real arbiter of whether or not something is accessible is people with disabilities actually using it. And so I, you know, I always recommend that there needs to be a research component to it. Uh, there needs to be research up front to figure out and make sure that we're solving the right problems, but there also needs to be research throughout and and at the I say end, but it's never really the end. <laughs> um, you know, research at the end, doing kind of a more you know formal usability study. How does this thing actually perform in its current state for people with disabilities? So that that to me is is a thing that that I will continue to push for because that's. That's part of inclusive design. We're including people with disabilities in the process all the way through. And that gives us the true best picture of what, what being accessible means, not just in the technical sense and meeting the, the guidelines, but in a how does this work for real people that are trying to accomplish a task. That is so, so true. I mean, I love that. We actually, that metric is something we should all be thinking about. How many people people with disabilities are actually using it? Uh, because 
I have clients now, because of the new web directive in the EU, of course, people are asking, uh, are we adhering to the law? And that's what people are concerned about. And that, of course, again, brings attention to the wrong thing. Because we're now sort of like, like James was saying, checking off boxes. And we're saying we're at a level of this. Uh, but you're also actually, with the web directive, giving a way out. Because you can add the to the web accessibility statement on your website. Uh, you can add uh, a writing or a statement where you essentially say, uh, we know these parts of the website are not accessible, but we have a plan for it to do whenever. Or you can ask us. Uh, so the law itself actually makes it harder to argue for the things that we're talking about now about actually caring, about caring for real people using the product rather than if we're adhering to these directives and the law uh, as it is. This is the number one reason, I, I think anyway, because that, that is not unique to, to the EU. This is, this is a problem everywhere. Um, and I say problem, that's maybe a little bit harsh, but, but one, of the, one of the things that I think is really, really important to do is, is for organizations to understand that the work that they're doing in accessibility is actually part of inclusion and it fits with many organizations these days have a diversity, equity, and inclusion type policy or a thing that they are trying to achieve. And we need to be able to tie the work that we're doing in, in accessibility into those things because that takes it out of the realm of just being a thing where, hey, we've met the need, we've met the need, we've met the need. If if we tie this into larger things like like D D E and I type discussions, uh, and and organizations' missions and vision and goals and and objectives, we have a, a greater chance of of success there. So tying it into those diversity initiatives, a lot of diversity initiatives that organizations around the world tend to center around HR, uh, and and they, if you look at companies and their their directives or their their mission and vision as it relates to diversity. It's often about hiring. It's often about hiring, and it's we're talking about gender, gender identity, race, you know, ethnicity. Um, sometimes, if we're lucky, we get some age uh, age related things popping up into the diversity equation. But we're still seeing a lot of people talking about diversity and inclusion without actually including people with disabilities as part of that conversation. So. It, there's there's a lot of work still to be done. I'm I'm I, I feel good though over the last few years after the last I don't know maybe five or six. This little resurgence is great in the tactical. Um, you know how do we actually build things that are accessible? I think there's a more of a groundswell now too that is pushing us towards the inclusive design side of things and diversity and inclusion and making sure that that people with disabilities are included in all of those conversations and in all of that work. It does sound so complex though, because what we've been saying now is that there are so many things to pay attention to. So as a designer listening to this show, I'm thinking, how do I find the time with the work I already have on hand to also fight for this? So if people aren't paying attention to it in my organization? That's a great, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things that we do, we, we need to build, you, you need to build that up, right? So I think a lot of things start small. 
we'll we'll get teams to do one usability study with people with disabilities and that is the 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 starting point and then people recognize and realize wow we learned a lot from that this is incredibly valuable how do we how do we continue this and so that it doesn't just become you know you as a designer that is passionate about it and interested in it it doesn't just become a thing that is all related to you we need to get that living in in everybody in the organization as much as possible so we we have we have things to do uh, in terms of demonstrating that and literally sharing recordings of, hey, here's how this, you know, here's how these people with these different disabilities performed when they were, were, were looking, at our, uh, looking at our website or our web app or our, our mobile app or whatever it is. We get that kind of evidence in front of people that starts to make people take a little bit more notice. Uh, and, and then that gets us to a point where we can start changing the conversation to say like, Hey, if we actually practice inclusive design, working with a bunch of people with different disabilities, we're going to have a whole lot of new ideas on what we should actually be building in our product. Anyway, uh, there's, there's a lot of room for innovation that comes from working specifically with people with disabilities. Uh, and, and I would say, I don't know if you've seen the Xbox adaptive controller from Microsoft, but that is a that is a, a an Xbox. So the Xbox adaptive controller is a, an incredible device. It was designed and built embracing the practice of inclusive design, uh, right down to the packaging. So that's definitely something. Go and read articles if you're listening now. Go and read articles on the Xbox adaptive controller and how it has. Uh, you know, taking the gaming world by storm. It's it's an incredible piece of 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 evidence that the inclusive design process works, and it ends up creating a thing that is incredibly accessible and uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a really great experience for many people with disabilities. It's not perfect, I'm sure, but what a what a great story. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so we'll definitely add that to the show notes as well. Uh, Derek, we don't want it to be eight years before we have you on the show again, but it has been awesome having you and talking to you again and, and hearing some updates and fantastic hearing also that you see this resurgence as well and that we should keep going at it now, really. Yeah, we, we have to, right? We, this, this, is, this is what I do. It's, we, we get people that are interested in it. We get them excited. We want to keep them excited and and you know, willing to do the work. I mean, that's, that's what this is. We've all got to be willing to do the work so that everybody can use the things that we're creating. And, and that's, you know, that, that resonates with a lot of people. So I'm hoping that that continues and, and that we'll just see this continue to improve. So I uh, thank you for having me too. I still, I still can't believe it's been eight years. Um, we, we definitely should like, we, we can, we need to, we need to reduce that gap. I'm I'm happy to come and talk with you with you all anytime you want to. It's always a lot of fun. Excellent. Great, Derek. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really liked what Derek said at the very beginning or towards the beginning of the interview um, when we asked about, well, we're talking about accessibility and whose job it was and so on. And um, Derek answered, of course, it's part of everyone's job but pointed out that that 
you still need mm. specialists. And that that thinking, that that point is applicable to pretty much UX or what we work with in general. That we've you know, we've had this um trend where everyone's a generalist and you know the the we've complained about how some of the um different aspects of design work that we remember from back in the day um have disappeared a little bit and they've been lost within other umbrellas and i think it's really good to remember again that mm. uh, yes we need to be aware of many many different aspects of design but we still need specialists to get us over the line or to get us up to that standard that we should be reaching that maybe we can't reach ourselves yeah and i think i think some people actually do think that uh, accessibility is only for specialists uh, and forget that they actually have the responsibility to ensure that it actually lives up, up to the accessibility guidelines uh, or to accessibility and inclusion in general as as derek is saying so I think his point being about it being both and what you're saying now is it's it's hugely important uh, because I mean compared to copywriting I mean you in UX you essentially need to understand that copywriting is important but for some copywriting yes you do need specialists as well. Mm. I think in our um, we actually had a little chat with Derek after we finished recording and one of the things we brought up there was was just about the kind of detail what you actually need to hand over um, as part of your design process mm. um, and we discussed and we're aware of things like um, um, colors that's something we've we've adopted as as designers the colors is something we think about a fair bit and we're very aware of the contrast side of things um, but Derek had a little list as well of, um, of that it's important to think and hand over labels and I, I brought up headings um, keyboard interactions focus order these are these are part of our design work yeah. Maybe not as visual all the time, but they're they're there and they're important. Because if you don't, if we don't hand them over, then someone else is going to um, well, engineering is going to do them for us, and then it's not designed in the same way. Exactly, they're part of the groundwork and the foundation and the baseline of what you actually need to hand over. And then also, you always need to remember that you still need people to understand why they're doing it, and not just how to do it, uh, because including people, actually talking to people with disabilities, that is what helps you understand why you're doing it and helps you make decisions that cannot be encompassed by any guidelines or frameworks or checklists, uh, but that actually show if people can use your product. Yeah, and that's that's the thing about having inclusion as a core value in your organization mm -hmm. rather than be just um, a, a process document, uh, a standard to be checked off the list, um, a deliverable um, it's, I think, what, what did he say? Inclusive design is a process and, and accessibility mm. is an outcome. Mm. Exactly. I love that. It's so, it's so spot on. And I think the point he brought up about how, I mean, I, I even feel that guidelines can be extremely dangerous in that people get a feel for, or even a, they feel confident that they are actually reaching 100% accessibility because they check off all the points in the guidelines. Whereas if you really work in the space as a, as a specialist, you understand that there's nothing that will guarantee 100% accessibility. There's just no, no such thing really, because you don't know about everything that can happen. And the guidelines only cover the things that we have reached consensus on and not the things we haven't discovered yet. Mm -hmm. There's always things to discover. Yeah. So 
you do need to make sure your organization has um, inclusion as part of its core belief and diversity initiatives um, are not just about who you employ which is what we've you know we've traditionally seen that that um, HR makes you know want to make sure we have a diverse workplace um but we've got to take this beyond just who's at the workplace but what an organization so that the that organizations make um products that improve diversity but also use mm. products internally that make the organization more diverse exactly and also his point about how do you know that your tool or software or service is accessible? Well, people with disabilities are using it. So in the end, if we're not seeing diversity among our users, we're failing. Users and workplace, we've got to see diversity everywhere. Hmm. And we've got to demand the diversity. That's where I'm a exactly. bit stuck, Pat. I don't really know. I mean, how do we how do how do we go about as designers trying to get our organizations to to be diverse and inclusive in that manner? Oh, for me, it always comes down to: Are people even aware that we're not inclusive? Mm. In most situations, I don't think they are. So for me, it's always about creating that awareness first and believing the best in people. But if you can't believe the best in people at your own workplace, then you will be struggling. <laughs> so we're 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 saying we need to we need to be prepared to have the conversation. It's that again, isn't it? Yeah, we need to actually yeah hold up our hands, uh, make a statement, and and help teach people. Yeah. Oh, so much to do. Always. <laughs> Thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, links and notes. Um, and the full transcript for this episode will be found on uxpodcast.com. Also in the link notes, um, Derek has some LinkedIn um, courses to do with accessibility. Um, yes. Which um, there will be almost certainly good things to bite into. And uh, for listening to next, we have uh, episode 198, where we actually do talk specifically about accessibility for designers. Uh, we do get a lot of questions, I think, uh, <laughs> being asked to talk specifically about accessibility. And we sort of sometimes say, hey, well, it's woven into everything. But yes, of course, there, you, it's, it, when you want to become a specialist, if you really want to dive into the topic, uh, that's a good one to start with as well. Yeah, because there we get hands-on. Mm -hmm. We actually get into some details about what mm -hmm. you need to do um, to, to design things more accessible. Um, mm -hmm. And also, remember, you can contribute to funding the show by visiting uacepodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. When does a joke turn into a dad joke? I don't know, Perry. When does a joke turn into a dad joke? When it... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to do that again.
James. Per. <laughs> James. Per. When does a joke turn into a dad joke? I don't know, but when does a joke turn into a dad joke? When it becomes apparent. Oh, that really wasn't worth waiting for, was it? <laughs>